There are moments, often late at night, where I am drawing my webcomic or editing an episode of this very podcast where I start thinking about how incredibly finite my life is, how my existence is basically an eye blank if you look at it in terms of geologic or even base time, and underpinning that with the fact that climate change makes it very plausible that the 21st century will end without human civilization as we know it existing in any capacity. And I just think, why the hell am I doing this? Out of all of the various things I could be doing with my very short and, as I said, very finite time, why am I doing this? And that brings up, yet again, existentialism, a philosophical idea that has popped up on this show a couple of times, interestingly enough, in our Howard the Duck episode. (laughs) In short, existentialism is a philosophical inquiry that explores existence through the agency of the human individual. It is often seen to be derived from the writing of Friedrich Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, and especially Soren Kierkegaard, particularly his 1844 essay, The Concept of Anxiety. In a nutshell, existentialism posits that uh, human suffering comes from angst in this context, meaning the struggle to find meaning in the world with no set purpose. Existentialism isn't necessarily the same thing as atheism. Some existentialists believe that there might be a god, but they don't believe that God created the universe with any kind of preset plan. Existence precedes essence in this idea. We have no predetermined purpose, and we must find one for ourselves particularly embodied in the post-World War II philosophies of Jean-Paul Sartre and, to a lesser extent, Albert Camus. Camus claimed that purpose is whatever prevents you from killing yourself. This leads many to believe that existentialism is essentially bleak, but if you look at it, it's often more of a glass-half-full version of nihilism. Yes, there's no inherent meaning that you can pattern your life after it, but you do get to choose your own adventure. And while freedom can be terrifying, especially according to Sartre, there is a liberation with it that can be um, nice. This brings me to the fact that it is one of the many concepts explored in Waking Life, the subject for today's episode. We are going to be picking this film apart the best way that we can and trying to turn it into something because there's a lot of it and also a lot of it slips through your fingers when you're trying to classify it. Uh, My name is Ryan, Surreal Deep Dive. Joining me for this episode is my sister Cheryl. Hi Cheryl! Yeah, doing it again. Hashtag beef did nothing wrong. Back. Yeah, you forgot to do it on the Howard the Duck episode. So I was to be good. Yeah, we got it out of the way this time. <laughs> now, this film is pretty different from the ones that we've done so far, which have steered more towards the schlock end of the spectrum. I mean, you know, if you're going to choose your own adventure, go for something fun. Yeah, the reason I approached you with this particular film is because you introduced me to a Netflix show uh, called The Midnight Gospel. It's a Pendleton Ward's follow-up to Adventure Time and uh, Bravest Warriors. And in that one, a bunch of characters just debate philosophical constructs while wacky animation nonsense goes on. Oh yeah, it's a trip, it's fun. Figured, you know, if Cheryl's into this, she'd probably be open to talking about waking life, because there's only really so many people I can spring this thing on. Yeah, understandably so. Yeah, get into it. Here's the, in my notes, I have a plot recap for every one of these episodes, but Waking Life fights against this. 
It doesn't really have a firm storyline. Uh, follows the concepts of docufiction, which uh, juxtaposes naturalistic conversational sequences with magical realism and dream logic. It focuses on an unnamed young man who drifts through an ethereal reality that cloudily transitions through everyday events until an existential crisis hits him. Or, or roughly, to, this doesn't have a three-act structure, but if you can force one in there, maybe the end of <laughs> Act Two. Throughout the film, philosophical debates occur. The man observes it first, but later he begins to participate. Subjects in the discussions include metaphysics, free will versus determinism, something we talked about in the Run Lola Run episode, social philosophy, uh, the nature of dreams, the meaning of life, situationist politics, post-humanity, transhumanism, and using the modern parlance, and postmodernism. Certain scenes do not include the man at all, focusing on individuals, a group, or most often a couple. The most noteworthy examples of this uh, include a sequence where Ethan Hawke and Julie uh, Delphi basically reprise their roles from 1995's Before Sunrise and have a bedroom conversation about reincarnation and what you might experience as you die in the last 15 minutes of brain activity, something Timothy Leary discussed as uh, Hawke quotes him. And then there's also another part where Alex frickin' Jones gives you a soliloquy. More on that later. Uh, most of the characters are played by amateurs with no acting experience. That's very obvious. The protagonist gradually realizes that he's living in a never-ending dream. One of the people that he's talking to goes over various things you can do to check to see if you're in a dream. You know, such as seeing if you can read small print. I never can. I've had dreams that seem to go on for hours where I'm trying to make out, like, a label. It, it never occurs to me that I'm not just bad at reading. I just can't form the letters because I'm dreaming. It's like the cutest, nerdiest little nightmare ever is that you can't read. I know. I'm I'm in the Twilight Zone episodes. There's time now. But in this one, it's the inability to flip a light switch on and off. Although reading letters on a digital clock also comes up uh, quite often. Uh, this kind of turns a corner when he approaches a woman on the subway and they have a chat about a creative project of hers and he just sort of flat out asks her what it's like to be a figment of his imagination in his dream, which she reacts to very well. I mean, she kind of blows him off and she's like, what's it like to be you? Yeah, but she doesn't like, fuck you, you solipsistic motherfucker. <laughs> He gradually begins to despair more and more about being trapped in the dream. His final conversation is with the director of the film, Richard Linklater. They uh, chat about Philip K. Dick's theories about reality and theorize that the protagonist's dream may be a single instance stretched out in an infinite period just before his death. Uh, it's presented that in order to free oneself from the illusion of life, one must openly accept God's invitation to become one with the universe. And then the film ends exactly as it begins. The film opens with a child floating off into space, trying to center himself with grabbing a car handle, but fails and just sort of floats up in the uh, endless reverse freefall. And that is what happens to our protagonist. And that's the film, at least in terms of it being a narrative, which it isn't really. It's mostly about the chatty bits. Sorry, I just watched this movie for the first time, so, like, I'm still catching up mentally. Like, my processing power is at, like, half capacity. I kind of sprung this one on you, because I didn't tell you what you were in for, and you didn't really know what this was. I didn't at all. I mean, it was really fascinating. Like, it was a feast for the mind, but, like, I can't tell you entirely what I saw yet. Uh, Rachel had a similar experience when we did the episode on the animated film Heavy Metal. She had no idea what Heavy Metal even was. 
gosh. Oh, but that's such a fun movie. Yeah, it's pretty different from this one. Then, like, fire and ice. You put those guys together as, like, a double feature. You're going to blow them. <laughs> it's fine. I haven't done an episode on fire and ice yet. I suppose I should put that in the pipeline somewhere, but the pipeline is already so full. Okay, uh, production of the film. Linklater expressed that he had the basic concept of waking life before he even had an interest in becoming a filmmaker. It is based on a lucid dream that he himself had that seemed to go on for months. This does not surprise me in the least. Sounds like a stress dream, if I've ever heard of one. He also drew a lot of it from his personal experiences with uh, LSD, psychotropic mushrooms, and other hallucinogens. Also not surprising. Link later felt that the movie was too blunt until it occurred to him to make it animated, which I fully agree with. More on that later. The idea behind his thinking here was that he wanted to make it a realistic unreality. I mean, I'll give him that. He definitely, like, it definitely sells that. It feels like you're in a dream while you're watching it. Which then brings me to the animation itself, which I also picked you because I'm sure you had feelings about it. Rotoscoping. I'm going to try to be nice. Oh, please don't be nice. It makes it more interesting. <laughs> well, I try to support that there are other types of art out there that I don't have to necessarily think are... It can't be nice. But I think it's ugly. I think it's ugly, and I want to say so badly that it's for people that are too lazy to draw something. And, like, a lot of people that do it are super talented. So I'm like, why can't you draw something? Rotoscoping was patented by Max Flesher in 1917. It was prominently used by him in the 1940s Superman cartoons, which are your best-case scenario when it comes to rotoscoping. Those things are fucking gorgeous. The basic concept of rotoscoping is that animators are drawing on top of live-action footage. Like Cheryl, a lot of people criticize this as a clumsy cost-cutting measure and the province of hacks. The rotoscope films that get the most bashing on this would be Ralph Bakshi's late 70s, early 80s films, notably Wizards, his Lord of the Rings movie, oh God, and American was... Pop. Those films were made very cheaply, and the rotoscoping was definitely a cost-cutting measure, because all you had to do is take live-action people of, like, roving around and just paint them and call them orcs. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my jaw is gonna lock up with, like, rage tetanus. I can't. I hate that movie. Once again, the 1940s Superman cartoons are rotoscoped, and they are beautiful, and early Disney films, Snow White, those have rotoscoping, very lovely. I'm sh I mean, I'm sh like I said, I'm sure that it can be done really, really well. It's just not my, it's not my bag. Yeah, and you weren't too crazy about how it was employed here. I, it's definitely, like, um, to a degree, like, it would 1,000% make our sister that has migraines, she'd get a migraine. The live-action footage was shot in Austin, Texas over the course of three weeks and then edited into a movie over the course of an additional three weeks with Final Cut Pro, which was a new program at the time. This film is done in 12 frames per second, except for um, the credits, which are 24 frames per second. And they were shot with handheld video cameras that you could buy at like, any like Best Buy or hardware store. So that is why there was all that shaky cam. I, I thought that that was intentional. I mean, it was to a point. I think that handheld gives you sort of a documentary feel to it, and that means that it's less that you're like an audience watching a narrative and more like a voyeur looking in on something. And I think that's kind of what the director was going for. You're just sort of like peeping over these characters' shoulders while they're having these intense theological and philosophical debates with each other. 
I mean, I, in a personal level, like that tracks more from my own personal dreaming experiences. It's either happening at me or I'm observing like over someone's shoulder. And also, this movie had no budget in three weeks, and it's just easier to grab some camcorders and just bang it out. The animation took about 15 months and was accomplished on Macintosh computers that were once again just bought off the shelf at like a nearby computer store or a Best Buy or something. And the um, rotoscoping was done with Rotoshop, a program explicitly designed for this film by software engineer Bob uh, Sabiston. It was then transferred to 35mm film. The individual animators were instructed to emphasize their own personal styles, leading to a wide divergence of uh, aesthetics within the film itself, like the subway conversation where he asked the woman well, what it's like to be a figment of his own dream. That kind of has that sort of expressive cubism in like Picasso's later works, especially like Guernica, which I like that bit. And I, I think you didn't hate it. it. It was, in my mind, it was artistic. Like they did a very beautiful job. It also got a lot more trippy as it progressed. Now, however, if you were of the mind that you yourself could make a film like Waking Life, just keep in mind that it took 250 hours to make one minute of animation. Yeah, the subway scene alone took about two months because of all the moving figures in it. And the outside scene where he floats into space took three weeks because all of the trees and the plants had to be done individually. It is the first fully digital rotoscoped film, which is an interesting record for it to do, a very, very particular niche. One thing that you picked up was that whenever they go into like a convenience store or like hold up a brand name product, all of the logos are altered. Like, Hershey bars are called Hercules bars, which is just cute. Yeah, it was super cute. It is also packed with references to other uh, Linklater films. Several locales in this are also in uh, 1990's Slacker, which is Linklater's uh, debut. A scene where the character talks about how mass media is meant to make us passive observers before he pours gasoline on himself and sets himself on fire. One of the onlookers is wearing a Slacker t-shirt. Oh, that's kind of cute. A little Easter egg. Yeah, also the uh, automobile with loudspeakers that Alex Jones yells out of, uh, that was also President Slacker. The pinball machine that Linklater is playing in the final scene is not from Slacker. It is from Dazed and Confused from 1993, which is probably Linklater's most well-known film. The name sounds familiar. It's one of those high school coming-of-age comedies that like people watched over and over again. Not really in our household. We were more of like like a Clueless and uh, Breakfast Club type of crowd, but Days and Confused is often lumped in with one of those. Okay, that's fair. One thing I also noticed a lot in the movie that was kind of cute was like uh, you'd see a bunch of random heads just talking while you know the main people are talking, like off to the side, mm -hmm. or like glasses breaking and then unbreaking. That was fun. Uh, yeah, because that, that, that follows along with dream logic. Also, while he's playing the pinball machine, you notice that there was a happy face in the score. A very bland-looking one, yeah. Yeah, that's the dazed and confused happy face. Oh, okay. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't look impressed that he was getting a high score. No, it didn't. And as I mentioned before, Hawk and Delpy are um, basically playing their same characters from uh, Before Sunrise, which came out in 1995 and was his most acclaimed film at that point. They would play the characters again in Before Sunset, which came out in 2004, a couple of years after this, and then one more time in Before Midnight in 2013. This is Linklater's most popular film. Once again, that stays to confuse. It might not be his most acclaimed because a lot of people really like Boyhood, but yeah, it seems to be like he's just going to check in with those characters every couple of years until one of them dies. Oh, I mean, they've already done Sunrise and Midnight. 
But it, how many, like, where else are you going? Yeah, I don't know. And uh, once again, they have the conversation about Philip K. Dick. One of Linklater's next films, his next animated film, was A Scanner Darkly, which is an adaptation of a Dick novel. It came out in 2006. Oh, I hate that movie. I, I knew that, which is one of the reasons why I thought this might be a weird sell for you. Uh, the Dick essay that Linklater references is How to Build a Universe That Doesn't Fall Apart Two Days Later, which is in the short story collection I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon. The title of the film itself is from an Edgar Allan Poe piece known as Dreams. And I'm going to read the excerpt that it's from. Yes, though that long dream were of hopeless sorrow, where better than the cold reality of waking life, to him whose heart must be, and hath been still, upon the lovely earth, a chaos of deep passion from his birth. I think it's an interesting excerpt to space this film around because, I don't know, my interpretation of that passage, if not the poem entirely, is that the figure there prefers his dreaming life to his waking life, which is not true in the movie. Like, this guy desperately wants to wake up. To be fair, a lot of the dream-like figments and, like, people and consciousnesses in there are just, like, get over it. And, like, why? So, like, maybe that's what it's from. It's from everybody else around him. And it's like, dude, just get used to it. You're here. Yes, just roll with it. Yeah, this is existentialism, man. You're, you're the captain of your ship. You need to build your own meaning, your own purpose. Stop raging with your angst yeah. and, and live life more honestly. There are other films referenced in here, for example, in the sequence where the chimpanzee is giving a video lecture. Akira Kurosawa's 1990 film Dreams is excerpted in the piece of the man stumbling down the hill. That film is just a straight-up adaptation of uh, Kurosawa's Dream Journal. A lot of people don't like that film, but it's actually my personal favorite of his. And there's some concert footage of Kurt Cobain doing a Nirvana gig that's also used in that sequence. That's what was going on. I couldn't figure out if they were beating people up and there was a band in the background or what? No, it was a bunch of people moshing while Nirvana was playing a set. Okay, that's good to know. Also, uh, director Steven Soderbergh has a cameo. He's the guy on the TV who's telling you that anecdote about uh, Louis Mal and Billy Wilder. The movie that they were talking about is 1975's Black Moon. It's never mentioned by name. Talking about the cast, uh, the main protagonist, his name is Wiley Wiggins. They never say that once, do they? That's the name of the actor. Oh, they, name. Yeah, they do not give him a name. In fact, the subway lady asks him what his name is, and he doesn't remember, which contributes to the theory that he is dead. And this never-ending dream is just the final moments before his brain shuts down and whatever happens after that happens. And, uh, he was also in Dazed and Confused. He's in his early 40s now, 2020, so he was stupid young when this came out. You're so old. Yeah. He keeps acting in indie films every now and again, although I guess mostly he's a video game designer. Uh, apparently he contributed to some of the animation of this film. And uh, we've been dancing around it. Alex fucking Jones. Uh... Yeah, I had to explain to Cheryl who Alex Jones was because she doesn't follow reactionary crazy people, probably for her benefit. I don't know why I do. I mean, I, it's not that I'm not aware of it, but I just don't hang on to the names. And I'm like, oh, well, that's sad. And then I move on with my life. Really, that's the healthy thing to do. I shouldn't be internalizing this bullshit. Anyways, at the time, Alex Jones had a talk radio and public access TV show in Austin, Texas. And I guess he just fell into Linklater's radar. 
know, if you know who Alex Jones is, it's probably not from this film. He later founded a right-wing conspiracy theory talk show known as Infowars and became a national celebrity based on it. He is best known for presenting the theory that the Sandy Hook school shooting massacre was staged with actors in an attempt to build a movement to repeal the Second Amendment. This eventually led, although years and years later, to him just being deplatformed on social media. I believe he is struggling financially. Good. <laughs> this also led to a custody battle where his ex-wife is trying to take visitation rights from his children away from him. And in court, he claimed as his defense to be playing a character, doing like a vaudevillian performance, and people just happened to keep falling for it. This didn't hold up in court. He lost the case. Also good. Linklater has expressed regret in giving Jones a platform in this movie. He gives a monologue about how the 21st century is a place where we should seize freedom, and he gets progressively angrier. The animator makes him purple in one scene and then red in another one. It's actually pretty lightweight compared to some of Jones's other rants, even apparently at the time that this film was made. When I first saw this film, when, when it was new, so decades ago, I identified with a lot of the monologues, including that one, and now I'm particularly embarrassed at my younger self whenever I revisit it. I mean, it's kind of super general, so it's easy to put meaning on top of what he was saying. Yeah, that's not the only monologue in the film that that can be applied to, but yeah, especially to Jones, especially in my current state, I just look at it and it's like, yeah, that sounds like it means something, but it could mean anything. It's like that pop-punk song you hear while you're driving to the dry cleaners or whatever, and you can just sort of project what you're doing throughout the day onto it, and it kind of fits because the words are that bland. So yeah, don't fall for this stuff. <laughs> Look at the end. Yeah. All right. So the, the score of the film was performed by uh, Glover Gill and the Tosca Tango Orchestra. It was performed in the Nuevo Tango style, which is down to its nuts and bolts. Uh, tango with uh, contemporary pop elements usually is thrown at it whenever something has digital textures or electric guitar and saxophone. The tango that you hear in this film is based on the work of the composer Aster Piazzolla, who is, I'm probably mispronouncing that, I should have looked it up before I started this episode, hardly the first time I've, I made that mistake, probably not the last. Beautiful stuff, good late night drawing music. It's all original material, except they do perform an excerpt from uh, Shaw Penn's Nocturne in E-flat major. Waking Life premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and reception to it was largely positive. Interestingly enough, this is one of Roger Ebert's personal favorite movies. I went through a couple of contemporary reviews of it, and uh, LA Weekly refers to it as, as a wank, but my kind of wank, which echoes my interpretation of the <laughs> film pretty closely. Most criticisms of it were for endless navel-gazing. Uh, the Village Voice, uh, in particular, referred to it as an endless bull session, which, fair... It did win a couple of awards, although it was nominated for a lot of them. One for Best Experimental Film from the National Society of Film Critics. It got a number of awards at, at the Venice Film Festival and got a nomination for a Golden Lion, which is their main awards. Most of the praise is for its animation, which aside from someone like Cheryl who hates rotoscoping, is pretty eye-opening. It was very novel at the time. Digital rotoscoping was still a new thing in 2001, so it does have that novelty hook for it. And as for the philosophical posturing of it, one, one person's profound is another person's pretentious. And, I mean, obviously all interpretation of art is inherently subjective, but this in particular... I liked some of them. Some of the talks were really nice. I'm like, yeah, no, I totally get that. And other times I was just like, oh, okay, are you sure? Like, what, 
what the what and like then like the guy that was behind like the bar cells I was like I'm uncomfortable and I'm sure that's the point of this but I'm so uncomfortable yeah, you like the one at the very beginning I think it's the first Marlana where the lady is talking about how language evolved and uh, when it went from just like experience related to general human survival to trying to attach meaning to intangible constructs such as love or fear. Yeah, and like relating it to past experiences and then connecting that again to the concept of being like, oh, hey, water. All right, now that brings it to the thematic portion of this, which I don't want this to be an hour-long episode, so we're only going to touch <laughs> upon a couple of things. Uh, one thing, dreams, that's a big deal in this. For most of human history, dreams were considered very important and sometimes prophetic. There are just centuries of text on people interpreting dreams and trying to see it as a message of God. Any culture you get to is something like that. More recently, Sigmund Freud's uh, The Interpretation of Dreams from 1989, I wanted to touch on that one. That's the one that signifies things like the subconscious and the unconscious. That's the one where Freud projects the Oedipal complex. Now, most of this is seen as complete bunk nowadays, particularly the particularly the Oedipal complex. Most people are like, that barely applied to late 19th century Western Europe, but in any other cultural situation is just poppycock. Uh, even Camille Paglia once expressed Freud as more art rather than science, although I do think that Freud touched upon a couple of things that are still relevant. First off, coining terms like the, uh, or at least popularizing terms like the unconscious is meaningful, and also just the idea that a good way to work through your problems is to chat with a sympathetic listener who is also not directly connected to your personal life. That is useful. Therapy is useful. Get therapy if you can afford it and you need it. But yeah, dreams have fallen in estimation as significant insight into the human condition. Basically, as soon as we were able to begin mapping the human brain electronically. I mean, when we sleep, the frontal lobes are less active, allowing the subconscious to take over. And over time, neuroscientists see this as, if not quite meaningless, then definitely not like a vision of the afterlife. The idea about dreaming that makes the most sense to me on a personal level is our dreams being this area where we are subconsciously working through the anxieties and neuroses of our daily life. Big surprise that like people in our family are like, yeah, dreams are about anxiety and stress. Dreams are where we are confronting our problems without the rational mind just forcing it to be about stuff. Just that's one of the conversations in this film where uh, the guy's talking about how our dreams are where we can interact with uh, memory without that filter on because biologically it wouldn't be useful for uh, our memories to be just as present as what we're experiencing at the moment because are we remembering this predator or does this predator actually exist in front of us the saber-toothed tiger yeah not, not really necessarily prescient but like you know immediate danger of yeah, which then segs into lucid dreaming, which is a dream in which one is aware that they are dreaming and then may be able to exert control over the reality of the dream world. You talked a bit about the about your lucid dreams while we were watching the film itself. Yeah, I mean, there's two types for me. There's the ones that you like, you wake up in the dream kind of in that like you're conscious enough to understand that it's a dream and you can change things. But then there are the ones where like, cool, you're it's and it's like um, being John Malkovich where like you're conscious and you're watching and you're stuck and you're like, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. But you can't make them not do it. 
Yeah, most of mine are the second bit. I, I told you I have this recurring dream. Like, other people have uh, dreams where they have powers, where they're flying and stuff, and I've never had one of those, but one I keep having is, is one where I am convinced that I'm Spider-Man, and Spider-Man is a real tangible thing in this dream world. However, I am not Spider-Man. I am just convinced that I am, and everyone that I confess my secret identity to are either humoring me or are trying to steer me towards professional help. And if dreams are a thing where we are working through our problems of the day, I kind of don't want to know what that means. <laughs> Honestly, I would absolutely read that story, though. <laughs> Most of my, like, lucid dreaming involves nightmares. It's all, it's all terrible. So, like, I mean, being Spider-Man or not being Spider-Man is probably healthier than that. Yeah, another thing that keeps getting brought up in waking life, in addition to existentialism, is Buddhism. However, I think the film itself doesn't really draw parallels between the two. Because, well, I think the root of existentialism is the idea that suffering comes from our inability to find authentic purpose in a world that doesn't have an inherent purpose. Buddhism is more like, your problems come from thinking that you should even have a purpose. Yeah, like, the whole concept of the self is what's trapping you into suffering and into these problems. Yeah, and the self is an illusion that must be transcended, in that the heart of the suffering is desire, the need for a purpose, and you need to let that go. But they do talk about other things, the self constantly being in flux, which is very Buddhist, living your re life in the reality of the now, which is pretty Buddhist, and the need for mindfulness, which is not unique to Buddhism, but is a facet of it. Uh, you know, focus on the immediate world, not on a distant object or people or things, just trying to take one thing at a time, although that also feels like Taoism to me. No, I can absolutely see that, and like, you know, it feels like uh, that social studies class where you're like just learning about all of that together for like the first time it's your first exposure yeah a great deal of waking life is your 10th grade philosophy 101 class which yeah the first time i saw this film i was basically that age so it worked for me i, I yeah this came out in 2001 i was still in high school yeah it's a, that's a pretty good analogy i think the, the final facet I wanted to talk about is the idea of authenticity of a world of consumer spectacle, because when you talk about authenticity in an existentialist realm, it's this idea of cutting away from what is imposed upon you as a purpose from, you know, your teacher or your parents or your church or government and just finding what you feel works best for you. Because existentialism like I said, people uh, rooted in Kierkegaard, but it didn't have its name until right after World War II, which is one of those situations where everything fell apart and people didn't know what meaning was anymore. It's kind of similar to Dada, where, uh, yeah, yeah. just thinking about that. Yeah, right after World War One, where all of these seemingly invincible social constructs, which were going to be in place for the entirety of human history, ended up being a lot more fragile than we thought they were. And so, what means anything if these things that we trusted and relied upon for our lives and our parents' lives and our grandparents' lives, those are all gone. What are we going to do now? I'm going to put a sink in, a, in, a, in an art museum and be like, God damn it, this is art. Deal with it. Yeah, it's intentionally nonsensical. Uh, insisting upon the only rational response to the absurdity of life is to laugh at it, which is also a very Kierkegaard thing. Kierkegaard is one of those guys who examined humor to the point where nothing was ever funny anymore. Like, you know, first college boyfriend, basically. Yeah, Waking Life is your first college boyfriend. <laughs>
finding authenticity, something that means something and is meaningful to you yourself, kind of conflates against the whole capitalism and neoliberalism demand of infinite growth and infinite production and everybody filling their own little niche in the little ant colony of the human race and never being satisfied with what you have because the entire point is that whenever you watch a commercial, he's like, you're miserable, but if you buy this car, you'll be less miserable. This will solve your problem, except it won't really. You'll feel good for like a couple of days and then you'll get that hollowness again and then you have to buy some new thing and do that with it. However, if we embrace Buddhism or existentialism and don't fall for that trap anymore, that kind of puts the car manufacturer out of business. And then what's this neoliberal construct going to be like if we aren't doing that anymore? And waking life is just like, yeah, how about that? Think about that for a bit. Here's Alex Jones turning purple over it. <laughs> Honestly, though, like, and I know this was not your point at all. I never really liked the whole be- people being like, well, you're like an ant. You're like a word gram. Like, word grams are satisfying. That made me think of T.H. White's The Sword in the Stone, where he used an ant colony as a metaphor for fascism. Because when um, Arthur is shrunk down into an ant, as opposed to like being a squirrel or a fish, he gets into the mindset of the ant, and the mindset of the ant only has two things, done and not done. That seems so peaceful. It kind of does. But, I mean, while humans crave structure and patterns, if we're running on that hamster wheel day in, day out, without any kind of other outlet or any kind of variation we will start feeling that angst again, that existentialist angst. Obviously, the solution isn't to constantly buy more crap. We can't handle that, not psychologically and not in a more practical term, because we live on a planet with finite resources, and if we keep buying cars, we will kill ourselves even faster than we already are. And if you look at these existentialist philosophers, most of their solutions aren't particularly pronounced. Uh, Kierkegaard told you to embrace Jesus Christ. Now, he hated the structure of the church, but he did glom onto the simple truth elements of Christianity that his father taught him as a young boy. And I don't know if he coined the phrase leap of faith himself, but he did popularize it. And, you know, that sounds nice, and I'm glad that it worked out to, uh, for him, or at least as much as it could have been. Kierkegaard seemed like a miserable bastard for most of the time. But <laughs> uh, that does seem just like sort of a cop-out to me. Like, the, the questions he asked were a, a lot more deeper than the solutions he presented, at least by my interpretation. Honestly, it kind of just sounds like the ending to The Little Mermaid, where it's just like, I don't know how to tie this off, so um, religion, the end. I think Kierkegaard and Anderson are both Danish. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's a cultural thing that we just don't get. Yeah, 19th century Denmark, that's all you people do, I say as an ugly American (laughs) with almost no knowledge of Danish culture. lost the Danish audience. They're gone now. Yeah, I I pissed off all the Danes. At least I didn't talk about Lars Ulrich. (laughs) Everybody I know is from Denmark. Those three people. (laughs) Okay, well, that's everything I wanted to talk about in Waking Life here, because once again, you might find it profound, or you might find it pretentious. It's a little of both. I think anyone would approach these monologues, and I don't think they'd all think all of them were equally valid. So A lot of them are better than others, sometimes by design. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you're just like, why Why is this happening? What even is this? And other times you're like, oh, that's beautiful. 
beautiful. Like, that's just, like, if it's not necessarily something that's, like, your own personal little heart song, you're like, I get it. I can, like, jam to that beat. And then the other guy's like, oh, well, you disappeared entirely up your own ass. <laughs> it's just like, you know, when people start talking about dreams, you're like, I'm about to be bored for five minutes. You're like, yeah, way to call yourself out, movie. <laughs> okay, well, if that's everything you wanted to talk about, uh, that's everything I wanted to talk about. Any any final thoughts about Waking Life? I get maybe, like, if the next time you show me a movie like this, give me, like, 30 minutes to process it first. Uh, no, that I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I gave Rachel like three days to digest stagecoach before we started talking about it. You, I just three in the deep end of the pool. In you go. <laughs> to be fair, it wasn't as much of a trip for me as the lobster, but like it was still my brain is toast. All right. Good night, everybody.